This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. Conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Well, hello once again and welcome to our Hurt with Fetters podcast. I am Pastor Greg Smith and I'm sitting here with author Jason Karch. And we today are going to talk about a reflection on rights. You know, when we talk about rights, you, you, you begin your discussion on rights telling the story of a, a woman who evidently was a probably a missionary in Guatemala and she was she was assaulted, she was raped, and it happened during a time in which the U.S. government was involved in Guatemala or had some responsibility in Guatemala. I guess that would be the point. And she tried to get some redress. That She approached our own government and said, this is what happened to me. Can anything be done about this? Because no one was ever brought to justice. No one was ever accused of a crime or anything else like that. And even at one point back in the Clinton administration, the president released some of the records that detailed our government's involvement with Guatemala, but no responsibility was ever taken. And so you raise the question, or the, or the word that comes up here is the word impunity. And impunity means that you, can, that you can do something or you can act in a way without worry at all that anything is going to be done about it. How does the issue of impunity come to bear in the current narrative of criminal justice or the way that justice is administered in this country. Well, if you think back to our discussion about a guy who was exonerated after a quarter of a century in prison, exonerated as an innocent man through DNA evidence, well, you have things like that occur you know, throughout the nation off and on all the time. And so in some of those instances, there was evidence that was deliberately obscured overlooked or suppressed okay so a by prosecutors so a prosecutor or maybe a investigator or something in order to get a conviction which was is the goal i suppose of those folks jobs to make sure that we get a conviction they withheld some evidence or covered up some other evidence or might not have presented all the evidence that might have exonerated the individual in the case you mentioned with the other guy i'm not sure it was DNA evidence that basically exonerated him, which they didn't have at the time of his conviction, but he didn't do it, so they obviously they were able to get him convicted even though he was innocent. Yes, they were able to get him convicted even though he was innocent, but when you think about things like that, in a trial, you have to prove someone to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, how do you do that? Okay. If, if someone is not actually guilty of a crime, if they're actually innocent, well, it's a way that certain evidence, whether or not it is tenuously or even spuriously connected to this particular person, the way it's presented to a jury, and the prosecutor sometimes probably knows the tenuous nature or even the spurious nature of these connections of this evidence, but he's going to present it anyway because he is an elected official. He's elected to an office that demands that he produce convictions. And hey, you understand, you're doing a job, but when you when you factor in this idea of impunity, there is no legal or criminal 
recourse uh, against these type of things. So this guy is exonerated after spending 25 years in prison and nothing happens to the prosecutor. No one's held accountable for the injustice, but there's no criminal liability no. Uh, in the sense. And, and you make the point that if you or I, if we go out and commit a crime, we're held accountable for that or we are made to pay penalty for that crime, whatever that penalty might be. If someone in a position like this commits some type of a crime where they withhold evidence or there's not any accountability that is held to that. I ask you, because you, you, so you write this, someone needs to be accountable for how human beings are treated at the hands of institutional power. Someone. The question that I have is, who is that someone? Someone, I think somebody's. The people who play those roles, the people who uh, deliberately suppress evidence. And so my question would be, so, so maybe we know who ought to be held accountable, but who holds them accountable? Well, the same law code that is used to sentence a person to prison ought to be the same law code that holds these people accountable. If you do this to somebody and it's discovered, then you're going to prison. But they're not afraid of that. They may be afraid of, you know, a smack on the hand by the Bar Association or you know, something like that. But at the end of the day, they're not afraid of losing their freedom by taking somebody else's. And is that because is that because the lawyers set the rules, the lawyers make the rules, or we just don't care? Well, I think it's something much deeper than that. I think when you're dealing with prosecutors, they're automatically categorized within this narrative that we've been talking about as one of the heroes, the good guys who are commissioned to deal in a particular way with the bad guy. So when the laws are generated for the purpose of dealing with the bad guy, they're not considered the bad guy. So there's no laws written to hold them accountable for, I mean, there's such things as prosecutorial misconduct and things like that, but not to the point to where I don't know in my experience that I've ever seen a prosecutor prosecuted for doing some defendant bad in the court of law and convicted of that and sent to prison because of it. I don't recall a case of Not that. prosecuted by the state. Maybe they were sued by the person that was victimized by the wrongful prosecution or the, the misconduct of the prosecutor. So they may have been sued and they may have had to, there, there may have been some type of money that had to be paid. There's some immunity probably on the part of Immunity guys. and impunity. <laughs> immunity and impunity, yeah. So you you mentioned that, that, so this double standard then basically removes the rights of one, exalts the rights, you know, of another. And this becomes, you know, when you begin to look at it, it makes absolutely no sense. It's nonsensical, but that really is the system that we deal with today. Now, if you go back to the Constitution, the Eighth, Amend the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution says that every United States citizen is protected, they have a constitutional right against cruel and unusual punishment. Now let's talk about that for just a second. So you have the right as a citizen of this country built into the Constitution that frees you from cruel and unusual punishment. But how does that work? What is that? that that's your right, but how do you exercise that right or, or receive that right? 
well, jurists have determined in their interpretation of the Constitution, and a lot of this is a semantic game, but they determine this particular right in the Constitution that punishment can either be cruel or it can be unusual, but it cannot be cruel and unusual. How is I don't understand that. Could you so unpack a, that a little more? A, an instance where, you know, it's been several years ago, I can't remember, there was a particular sheriff in Arizona. I think he ended up running for some kind of political office higher than that later on, but, you know, this whole issue broke out in the media of the way that their jails were overcrowded, so he had somewhat of an annex, a tent annex, to the jail that housed low-level offenders, people with misdemeanors, setting out jail fines, whatever, and he forced them to wear all pink, like pink boxers, pink socks, pink shirts, and people basically laughed, making these men who are misdemeanor offenders living in these tent cities as an annex to the jail, having to wear the, all this pink stuff. Well, some people brought suit against that. Well, it's unusual in reference to how things uh, are punished here, but it's not cruel. And who made that determination? Some court made the determination. That it wasn't cruel, but it was unusual. It was unusual, but it wasn't cruel. So it can either be cruel or it can either be unusual, but it cannot constitutionally be cruel and unusual. So does that mean they can basically do anything to you? Because the Eighth Amendment guarantees you that you cannot be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. But could you be subjected to cruel punishment that's not unusual or unusual punishment that's not cruel? Certainly. You have Piper Kellerman's book, Orange is the New Black, about her experience in federal prison. And she makes the statement in her book about how she doesn't understand how somebody can be subjected to just the rote repetition of mindless and meaningless work without going completely insane because these women at whatever facility she was in, part of their job was to do just these meaningless and mindless repetitious tasks like cleaning cracks with toothbrushes or something like that. And some people would consider that to be cruel, making somebody get down on their hands and knees and continually scrub the same spot for six hours straight with a toothbrush, that may be cruel, but it's not cruel and unusual. So, so yeah. It's okay. Yeah, so that's okay. But they can't be those, but nothing can be cruel and unusual, then then there's no... Well, that's, that's basically an arbitrary determination by the courts. Okay. Which, which, which kind of begs the question, you know, who determines what is cruel or what is unusual? For example, locking someone in a cage, which basically is what prison is, could be considered. There would be some people that look at that and say, that's cruel and unusual. Maybe since we've done more and more of it these days, it's not unusual anymore, but it could be construed as cruel. So the problem here is, is that, so the Constitution offers rights, but if we, you're right, if we need constitutional rights to prevent us from punishing prisoners in a cruel and unusual way, then something has gone seriously wrong with our moral constitution. What, what is it that has gone wrong with our moral constitution? What do you mean by that? Well, if I need something in writing to prevent me, to restrain me from treating another human in that way, then we've stepped beyond an issue of law. There's something wrong with my moral constitution. If I need something written down 
in a legal code that prevents me from doing another human being that way, that's a problem. You know, something, something is seriously wrong with our moral constitution. Now, I agree that we need constitutional rights, we need state rights, we need the law. You know, we need that because we are sinners. You know, we go back to, if we define sin as an ultimate selfishness that we have as human beings and a selfish person has a propensity to act in all kinds of crazy ways. So we need the law, but just thinking through this from a moral standpoint, if I'm a judge and I have to look at how this person is treated and then say, okay, well, you know, the Constitution says that he can't be treated in a cruel and unusual way, and as a judge I can see, hey man, this is cruel. Or I can see, man, hey, this is this is unusual the way they're doing this guy. But the Constitution says that it has to be both cruel and unusual, so go ahead and continue to treat him that way. That's a problem. I agree. But I think when it comes to our question of what is cruel and unusual, I think it still, you know, dovetails into this question of rights, how we determine what the rights of someone who has been convicted of a crime is. Something that would be cruel and unusual for a good person that hasn't been convicted of a crime and something that would be cruel and unusual for the bad person who has are radically different things. And you raised a question, in fact, a couple of questions here is, and I'm not going to go back and ask you about uh, Nicomachean ethics or Aristotle's uh, eudaimonism. Okay. Hold on. Want to leave that alone? Or what? I'm going to leave that one alone because I'm not sure that I can intelligently discuss that particular subject with you. But you basically raised the issue, or for Aristotle, the term for fairness was epiakeia, which is a Greek term that basically refers to well, maybe what is right or wrong, what can or cannot, that's the way I understand that, that particular word, right? But what I'd like for you to address before we get to the questions that it raises, you, you know, you say that this understanding, Aristotle's understanding of fairness, must encompass and govern jurisprudence. My question to you is why? Well, I say that because when you think about you know, I use Luther as an example. His first teaching post at Wittenberg was uh, lecturing on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And, you know, he really seized on this term of fairness in Aristotle. He, he equated this concept of, of fairness in reference to rights with our concepts of justice. Now, keep in mind, before Luther ever went to Wittenberg, he was at Erfurt studying to be a lawyer. His education prior to studying theology was in law. And Luther made the equation between this concept of fairness as what governs our link between rights and justice. They're not separate issues. And so when we talk about justice being done, if justice is being done, it doesn't excuse the rights of those who are coming under the aegis of justice when we try to rebalance the scales of justice, as it were, we don't vacate someone's rights in order to do that. Because if we do that, we're not talking about justice anymore. I think that's why I make the point to say that, you know, this concept must encompass and govern jurisprudence. Okay. 
So if justice is grounded in the person work of God, then and based upon who he is, so we gotta treat one another in that way, then justice demands that humans have a basic right to be treated in a way that justice deems right and fair. The problem that I have with that seems to be that couldn't the prosecutor that prosecuted you say, justice demands this and you did this and justice demands, justice says this is right and fair. I mean, sure he can say that. The question is, is if his definition of justice stems from a ground in the being of God, because here we're not talking about rights in a void. We've defined a particular understanding of justice. And so based on that understanding of justice, justice as a conceptual reality that is grounded in the person of God, if that is where we understand, get our understanding of justice, then that particular kind of justice demands that we be treated in a way that is consistent with that understanding of justice. And from that is where we get our understanding of rights. If not, then we're talking about rights in the way that the world talks about it right now, where I can afford you a particular right, but take that right from another person because we've defined justice in a, in a, in a different type of way. So we have a particular understanding of justice right here that is grounded in the person and work of God. And if that's the case, then that particular type of justice demands that people be treated in a way that's consistent with how we define justice. But if we're working from a conceptual understanding of justice like we have been here, then when justice is upset or the balance of justice is knocked off kilter, the means by which that balance is reestablished could mean that we lock somebody up in a cage. But the reason that we're locking them up in that cage is for the rebalance of justice. And if justice is a relational term, the way that that rebalancing looks is through a restoration of a relationship. And if you lock somebody up in a cage to let them rot, there is no opportunity for restoration. All right, so justice, right or rights, fair. And after that sentence where you say that Justice demands that humans have a basic right to be treated in a way that justice deems right and fair. So you bring in fairness here, rights and fairness. And then the next sentence says, from that basic right stems our understanding and construal of human rights. What basic right are we talking about? The basic right to be treated in a way that justice deems right and fair. And this is the problem. People are so entrenched in a particular understanding of justice that's really not justice, it's vengeance. They're so entrenched in that. It's very, very difficult so I, I get, yeah, yeah, for yeah. people so it's to just to lock his dude up. Yeah, yeah it's very, very difficult for people to back up and begin to not just think about, but to understand justice in this way. And if we do that, if we begin to understand justice in this way, as a justice is a relational term and we're not talking about just some general relationship we're talking about you know the relationship of human beings and then particularly one human being to the rest of human beings that uh, encompass society narrow understanding of society a larger understanding of society cast all the way out into 
broad understandings of civilization. However we do that, it's a relational thing. But it's so impersonal now to where we're not even talking about justice. We're talking about vengeance. It's very difficult for people to back up and see justice in this particular way. And if we do so, if we see justice in this way, and that the relationship we share in reference to justice is born out of how we've been created equally by God in His image, and by that have an, an equal value and equal dignity, we have a right, a basic right, to be treated by one another in reference to how it is we've been created in the image and likeness of God. That's justice. And we have a right to be treated in a way that that type of justice deems right and fair. And if we have that basic right, now we can begin to talk about the rest of how we understand human rights. The, the questions that come from this is, first of all, is there a general validity is there a validity to rights talk at all for Christians? Should, Chris, should a Christian be even talking about that, I guess, is what I take from that. And if true, if we should be, then the next question is, is there particular validity to rights talk when it comes to the rights of prisoners? So first of all, should Christians even be, is this an issue really that is a Christian issue, I guess? Or should we be talking about rights at all? And if so, then then should we be talking about rights as it relates to people incarcerated in prison? Well, if they do, I think that it has to stem from how we understand rights as they flow out of history okay. of, of creation, fall, and redemption whatever rights that we have have to be based on how we are created in the image of God with an equal and inherent value, dignity, and worth based on that being created by God. Uh, they have to flow out of the fact that we all are sinners. You know, we all have a predisposition to selfishness. Right? So whatever rights we're talking about, I mean, my selfishness, I want my rights, but also i got to recognize you have them too. And we also have to interpret our understanding of rights through the lens of the links in which God went to redeem humanity, to reconcile humanity back to himself. And so when we read rights, we have to read it out of that story, not some other story. Because if we read it out of some other story or some other narrative, inevitably what will end up happening is we will emphasize the rights of one group of people over the rights of another group of people. Yeah, and it comes to the point, do I lose my rights? So if I, but, but if I act in a way that violates your rights for life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, so if I take your life, do I lose some rights in that, I guess? I see the, I, I definitely see the point. Yeah. And it really comes back, I think, to uh, what is the ultimate right? Yes. So then you go on to suggest that Bolsterstorff's theory of rights developed in his justice rights and wrongs. He differentiates between right order and inherent rights. He embraces the latter, which is the inherent rights, not the right order. He argues that we have the inherent rights based on an ontological grounded dignity and value that, that we have by virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God. Nevertheless, he warns against a subculture of rights that easily loses focus of the real end of the rights tradition. And then you 
mentioned that this warning justifies Milbank's criticism of Wright's language for he talks about Wright's talk has a way of obscuring the basic dignity we possess as humans. So explain that. How does Wright's talk obscure the basic dignity we possess as humans? Okay, well I'll just use a very specific example. Peter Singer. Peter Singer was very popular for arguing for animal rights. He would always, you know, he would take this to radical examples and he would talk about the rights of pigs and he would say that a pig possesses the same rights on the same level for the same reason that any person does. When you talk about a particular theory of rights, rights talk can end up diminishing the dignity we, because when God created human beings, he created human beings in a different way for a different reason than he created pigs. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so if you separate God from the equation, then, yeah, you can... Yeah, but, so we can have this subculture of rights where we begin to talk about rights in a way that diminish the real rights of human beings that is rooted in a true understanding of justice that is born out or grounded in the person and work of God and how humans have been created in the image and likeness of God. Then the point would be that if we just talk about rights, in fact, this is exactly what you say, you're obscuring the point of our humanity. So, because anything or everything could have a right, but basic humanity does not change because of that. We're still creating the image of God. So, are you suggesting or you're arguing, because, because your next line then, Thus, rights or right language, when it comes to convicted felons, loses much of its validity. So, you're saying, let's don't talk about rights, let's just talk about basic humanity. Well, you got to walk it back. When we're talking about rights, we're talking about rights in a particular way that stems from the fact that we have all been created in, by God in His image with inherent dignity and value. And again, from a particular understanding of justice. If we sweep that out the door, we lose sight of what a right is. And because the world is so captured by this particular understanding of rights, when it comes to talking about rights for prisoners, we're thinking about it in this way, not because they are human beings created in the image of God. They got just as much rights as a pig does. I mean, we're talking about rights for pigs on the same level as we're talking about rights for people. Then, yeah, pretty much treat people however you want to treat them now. So what I hear you saying is you, you've got to start with basic humanity, and then you can talk about rights. If you don't have basic humanity, then the rights conversation is is meaningless. So, so well, are you, well, not so necessarily saying, meaningless, but it certainly loses validity, I think, is, the, is what you say here. If we're talking about the rights, the right language when it comes to convicted felons loses its validity because you haven't begun, or, or, or they're not viewed when you started in the right place. Basic humanity, all right? We haven't started in the right place. So you write that a right, when it comes down to it, is an expression of a particular relationship. What does that mean? Well, and I go, on, yeah, I go on to explain that. And obviously built on, you know, what we've discussed in the past on you know, what it means to be created in the image of God. We are inherently related to one another on the basis of our humanity because we've been created by God, because God is a relational being right, in His triune nature, then justice itself uh, is a relational term 
So even when we begin to talk about rights, it is the expression of a particular relationship because we have this relationship as human beings. We need to treat each other in a way that is equal or fair, but we don't do that because we don't see ourselves in relationship with one another. So from your unique perspective, and you kind of continue on with this, when, when a person is sentenced to prison for whatever term, what basic rights are taken away? From a, from your experience, I'm not saying what, what is articulated saying, yes, we're going to take these rights away from you, but basically what rights are removed from a from an individual when they're convicted of a felony and sentenced to prison? Well, I mean, obviously something changes here because whatever, however the law defines, you know, the crime that I committed, it was such a violation of the law. It was viewed in such a way that it cost me, uh, at the very least, 30 calendar years of my life locked up in prison because somebody was robbed and somebody's nose was broken in the commission of this robbery. Well, in the course of my stay uh, in prison, I've had my nose broke twice. So if somebody were to take my shoes, my commissary or whatever, in the commission of an assault where my nose is broken, that's a rule infraction. Where, Where somebody gets 45 days commissary restriction, 45 days rec restriction but so, it's not a felony offense that's going to cost somebody 30 calendar years of their life in prison so what changes right so what am right i not have am, you lost? yeah am i not a human being on the same level as a human being on the outside so something changes there uh, when, when it comes to rights and i think everybody possesses a basic right to be treated as a human being and i don't think that that once somebody is convicted of a felony, sentenced to prison, that right no longer applies to them with the same force that it would in other circumstances. Which would, you know, speak to the fact that if you were assaulted in this in this facility, it would not be a crime per se; it would be a rule infraction. Yes. As I, as I was thinking through this, and and you do right, and I think it's a very important point to make, and we're talking spiritually or theologically. Minimizing a right does not minimize the man. And so if your basic human dignity or the value that other human beings place on you by locking you up or whatever does not change who you are under God. But it is expressed, I think, in the lost rights. I I, I was thinking, uh, you know, the preamble to the Constitution states that we believe that all men are created equal. It doesn't say unless you're convicted of a felony. All men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among these life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And, and you know, and that, you know, even the people will appeal to that. And I think when it comes to rights, that there is a, a certain rhetorical force when it comes to how we express. Yeah, well, people have rights that are in prison in some people's mind. Prisoners have far too many rights. So there is a rhetorical force in the mind of society that satisfies society in in some sense. But, you know, I say in the book that the reality is no matter what type of rhetorical force they have, they're really impotent to marshal 
any substantial force for the protection of prisoners as human beings. So, and this is kind of where the, the issue of rights kind of comes to a little bit clearer, or, or it's making a little bit more sense, I guess, because if we just talk about rights, and the rights themselves have value, you point out, and just going back to the, you know, to the issue of slavery, so you know, the Declaration says all men are created equal, which we have just said what they really meant was some, some people are created equal, not everybody, but some people, you know, if you've committed a crime and you're not created equal, right? But you point out that, it, that even in that, that world, there, there's some natural rights that even, for example, slaves possessed. But because of their, the color of their skin, those natural rights were limited. That is, they weren't allowed to enjoy the full measure of those rights, I suppose, would be a way to think about that. And so in the same way, you're right, that this is kind of the way it's, it's viewed as prisoners. Probably most people... Certainly, I think most Christians would yet say that you, as a prisoner serving a life sentence, yeah, you, you're a human being, and you possess basic human rights, and these things are yours. But because of your circumstance, or because of you know, your actions, or whatever, because of what, what, is, what happened with the, the crime, and then the, the trial, that you basically lost some of your rights, or maybe you shouldn't have all these rights. Or, and I guess my question then becomes, can or, or is that a right perspective? Should I lose rights you know, based upon... Should I lose the right to be human because I've violated a state law? No. I don't think that anybody should lose the right to be human for any reason. Okay, so... You know, and we don't have to like prisoners certainly don't have to like criminal acts but that dislike and that resentment should never translate into the vitiation of rights that belong to even the worst people because they're still at the end of the day human beings created in the image of God created in the image of God so what is the uh, responsibility then of, um, of the church or of God's people in light of of this reality, of not just the fact that we're all created in the image of God, but of what passes for justice in our culture today. Well, I think that the responsibility of the church is first and foremost to be fully invested in God's story. Don't be captured by these false narratives to be beholden to ideas of justice that do not correspond to the person of God, the equality we share as human beings and in this country at least Christians still have not just a voice but a very powerful voice to express concerns about these things in a very public way Christians still have a voice and I think that they should use it a voice that's consistent with the biblical narrative so you're calling on God's people or to to just stand for for basic biblical principles of life of humanity, of the image of God, and to stand, I guess, for the, the vital right. I, I want to just kind of read how you sum this up and then maybe have you comment on it. You write in the last paragraph of this chapter that no articulation of human rights from a Christian position can be complemented by the unrelenting 
retributive punishment of crime accompanied by the dehumanizing elements of that punishment. And basically what that means is, is that we can't speak as a believer or as a child of God about basic human rights without or in the context of the retributive punishment of crime that is taking place now. You, you can't separate the two and say, well, that doesn't count or that's not happening. Because basically when what we do with uh, our, our prisoners is we remove their basic humanity. And so as a result of that, we can do anything we want to with them. And that's just the reality. And so what you're arguing here is, is that we can't talk about one without the other. We can't just let that go. A Christian understanding of God's justice, his love and his law of the legislation of love cannot distance itself from the concerns associated with the underrepresented rights of prisoners. Chief among those rights is the right to reformation and reconciliation. And what you've done, I think, is, is, is brought us back to what are the basic human rights in this particular issue. So when we're, when we're creating the image of God and we bear that image, regardless of who we are or what we've done, that doesn't change simply because we've sinned or we have committed an offense against another or against God or whatever because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God but we still all possess the basic humanity from God we, we possess the image of God that is not changed it might be marred it might be distorted by our sin or by our actions but it is not removed and so we do not lose the basic right or the vital right to reconciliation, reformation, redemption. And if we live with a system that robs that or removes that, those rights from an individual, then that system uh, ought to be changed and brought under the authority of God and the Word of God. And I think if we're going to do it that way, then we need to call it what it is. Don't try to disguise it as something that is not. Let's don't call it justice. Let's call it vengeance. Retribution. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that this discussion stirs your thoughts, obviously, in your hearts and minds to these vital issues of who we are as a culture, as a society, and how the way we execute or process criminal justice reflects on each one of us certainly as God's people. So God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And in our concluding episode, we're going to try to we're going to try to pull all this together and help us to understand how to, to think about all of this. So God bless you today. Jason, thank you for your work and for being a part of this. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Feathers, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Feathers, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.